Hey, y'all. <laughs> well, welcome back, creeps. I just... Oh, man, I shouldn't have done that because then that's all my energy gone for the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all our, right. Yeah, so today is it's our anniversary. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we got married on Valentine's Day. Yes, so that I could remember when our anniversary was. Yep. It's easy to remember that way. Yep. And Houston and all of Texas is shitting bricks at the minute because it's rainy and cold. Shitting ice cubes. Because they don't know what to do with themselves. I know the rest of the country's in a terrible state. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, we just had that 100 car pileup in Fort Worth uh, with all those people that had died. It's just... I mean, we live in Texas. We don't know how to drive on ice. You know, a lot of us don't. And with the years that pass and new drivers on the road, chances are they don't either, you know? Yeah. But anyway, we're going to record a lovely episode for you today, I think. I don't know what it's about. Dulce's very excited about it. Well, lovely is a word. I wouldn't wouldn't use it. (laughs) But anyways, um, it's grim. It's crazy, and I'm just excited to tell it. Right on. Yeah. So, we're going to start things off right meow. This is the story of Carol Edward Cole, otherwise known as the Barfly Strangler. Oh. Yeah. I've only heard that name. I actually don't know anything about her or him or her. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) He was born on May 9th, 1938. He hated his name, so he went by Eddie instead. Eddie as in short for Carol? Uh, No, his name is Carol Edward. Oh, right. For sure. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) He was born in Sioux City. Iowa. I have a feeling. Now this might just be because I was like touching up on my hellier stuff, mm. um, and like synchronicity mm. things. Sioux City keeps coming up. I have seen that everywhere the last few days. I think we need to go there. Well, you said. Um, I think we. What were we talking about? That you said that something came up in Sioux City about Sioux City or something like that. Well, our friend that we just did our interview with last week her house is in sioux city remember? oh yeah 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 but aside from that like everything yeah okay everything that i've been reading has been coming back to sioux city well i'm down okay <laughs> so he was born in sioux city iowa i don't know why i keep putting a pause between sioux city and iowa <laughs> but it's iowa to laverne and vesta cole now, when I read these names, I was like, okay, which one is which? So, Laverne is the father and Vesta is the mother. I've never heard a name. I, I've never heard Vesta as a name before. Me neither, but I definitely think that the name Laverne needs to make a comeback. I feel like Laverne is generally like for babies born as females. That's a weird name, weird way to say yeah. girls. I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was a man's name. Laverne? Yeah. I thought it was a, a lady's name. I don't, I don't know. know. Well, needs to come back anyway. Yeah. 
You know, I really enjoy the name Beverly as well. Back when I used to smoke, I had a utensil I named Beverly. <laughs> um, anyways, he had an older brother named Richard. And in 1939, Eddie's baby sister was born. Uh, I don't know much about the baby sister. Um, there wasn't a lot of information on baby sister Cole. Anyways, the family moved that same year to Richmond, California. Laverne got a job at a shipyard and soon after was drafted to fight in World War II. The relationship Eddie had with his mother, uh, who stayed behind obviously, was not a positive one. She was emotionally abusive and would force Eddie to dress up like a girl in frilly dresses. It's one of those stories. Yeah. Vesta would sometimes invite her girlfriends over and have Eddie serve them tea in her dress. And like, not Vesta's dress, but in a dress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She would call him Mama's little girl, like in front of them. Mm-hmm. And all the time. She would also force him to go with her on her drunken dates with random men and forced him to watch. Not just the dates, you mean? Yeah. In, yeah. Okay, okay. So this happened when Eddie was about five years old. Well, it started when he was five years old. Who are these men? I've, I've often wondered that. Like, who who got like, oh, it's fine. He, he'll, he'll just watch. I'm guessing. I'd be like, no, love. Like, you're all right. I don't need it that bad. I think it's the same grade of people who are like Vesta, who finds it okay to bring your child to have like to come watch you have sex with strangers yeah i guess uh, he's got to learn sometime yeah afterwards she would threaten to beat him if he would ever if he ever told his father but proceeded to do it anyway when they arrived home by that time he was very familiar with her beatings as she would deal them out for the smallest of mistakes some sources said the beating stopped when Eddie's father came back from the war, and other sources said it continued. What is true, though, is his growing hatred for his mother and women in general. He claims that at an early age, he would get so angry that he would black out. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, just get so worked up mm-hmm. that he would pass out. Like, he would have lapses missing from his memory. Jesus. At age seven, he had a blackout, and when he came to, he found that he had strangled the family's puppy. Whoa. Yeah. It was at this time that he began fantasizing about killing his mother and any woman, really, that reminded him of her. It probably didn't help his emotional and mental health that he got teased at school for having a, quote, girl's name either. Ah, yeah. yeah. Eddie recalled, quote, the kids made quite a thing of taunting me. I felt animosity, withdrawing more and more into myself. At age eight, Eddie was swimming with a few of his classmates at Richmond's Yacht Harbor, including a bully kid named Dwayne. He later recalled this boy as, quote, an ass from school named Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently this kid would always ask, what does it feel like to have a girl's name, Carol? 
I mean, that, that kind of thing is to be expected, like naming your kid like that. I mean, it's not going to be like the song A Boy Named Sue. You know what I mean? It'll be like that. Yeah. So Eddie waited until he was alone with Dwayne. Eddie was in the water and Dwayne dived in from a log. Cole quickly went to block Dwayne from coming back up by wrapping his legs around the boy's neck and bracing himself with a log nearby for leverage until he didn't see any more bubbles float to the surface. Whoa. He said, quote, I held him under till I knew he was dead, and when I let him go, he sank, end quote. At how old is he? He was eight. And, and the other kid was eight too? Yeah. Wow. Off to a hot start. I <laughs> know. He had a crazy ass life. So before the police ruled the death as an accident, because they did, Eddie was shitting his pants because he thought for sure that he was going to go to jail. He said, quote, I was afraid of the police with reason, but there was no remorse for Dwayne. I hated him and I was glad I stood up for myself, end quote. Uh, I mean, yeah, what do you say? Like, yeah. It's what you tell kids. Stand yeah. up for yourself. Yeah. Like, don't take any shit, but yeah. I mean, don't kill the person either. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he took it the wrong way. Uh, he also said, if I thought my life was going to improve, like meaning after he killed Dwayne, I was sadly mistaken. Neither at home or at school. I was getting meaner and meaner, fighting all the time in a way to hurt or maim. And my thoughts were not the ideas of an innocent child, believe me. Here's another childhood story. Eddie was in a yo-yo contest with a couple of classmates, and he came out in second place. Eddie took the kid who bested him to a place where there was construction going on, like on a road. And he forced the kid's hand into the gears of a machine. Jesus. The kid's hand went through a couple of threads and he was maimed like for life. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. I guess that was just him sticking up for himself. <laughs> Again. Yeah. So as a teenager, he had taken to the drink and committed petty thefts like burglary. Um, he also committed arson and car theft, which he was arrested for like all the time he wasn't very good at getting away with it yeah yeah um in school he had a d grade average which is almost like at the cusp of like right before failing me too me too (laughs) but he scored a quote genius level of a hundred of 152 on an iq test eddie eventually dropped out of school in the middle of his junior year which is 10th grade no, so, 11th grade, right before senior year. So when you're like 14 or 15? Uh, Like when you're 16. Okay. Yeah. And he started working menial jobs. When he turned 18 in 1957, he joined the Navy, but his drinking and theft of government property earned him a bad conduct discharge. So what did he steal? Pistols. <laughs> Oh, I was expecting like a whole box of pens or something. (laughs) (laughs) So I investigated what bad conduct discharge was because I only know about um, dishonorable discharge. Yeah. This is what I found out. I also want you to try to guess like the ulterior motive of as to why I decided to include 
the definition of bad conduct discharge. Okay. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So check this out. A bad conduct discharge, uh, the acronym is BCD. That's what they use, the acronym BCD. Colloquially referred to as big chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you included this. Yes, <laughs> one of the other reasons. From the initialism, can only be given by a court-martial as punishment for an enlisted service member. Bad conduct discharges are often preceded by a period of confinement in a military prison. The discharge itself is not executed until the completion of both confinement and the appellate review process. So this means he spent some time in military jail right before he got released. And so has he been in and out of prison before now or he just kept getting like arrested but no charges pressed kind of thing um well i feel like he probably only did because he was a teenager still he probably just did like a few nights or yeah nothing serious yeah okay not like years you know and does it say how long he was in the military prison for so they only put him in the prison long enough for them to review okay can the charges stick and just review his case. And then they decided to go ahead and release him. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So apparently he was also arrested, like, while he was in the military. He was arrested on the suspicion of burglary and auto theft. So that didn't exactly help his case. <laughs> so that's what made the big chicken dinner, uh, like, stick. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Big chicken dinner. I know, that's so strange. With nowhere to go, he went back home to his mother, who delighted in rubbing his nose in his failures. This is what probably triggered him to attack two couples with a hammer who were parked in their cars in an area that was known for lovers to go and be alone. He was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and was sentenced to 30 days to the county work farm. Soon after, he called the police and told them that he couldn't stop having violent fantasies about raping and strangling women. The police suggested he self-commit himself to a mental hospital, and he did so several times because he went to different ones. That's almost impressive, mm. especially for when this would have been the 50s, right? Yeah, late 50s, early 60s. Well. At this time, he was only 22. That's crazy to me. Yeah, still a baby really, isn't it? Yeah. He also tried to kill himself at least once during this time. One of the first hospitals he went to was the Napa State Hospital. He was there for 90 days for observation and treatment. He was not honest at the beginning because he told the doctors that he had a happy childhood and he refused to get into the bad experiences in his life. The staff eventually diagnosed him with antisocial sociopath personality disturbance and discharged him in 1961. They recommended that he continue psychiatric treatment or voluntary admission to Atascadero State Hospital because of his sadistic and abnormal sexual tendencies. 
Four months later, he found himself in jail again, serving a six-month sentence for auto theft. While he was in there, the request he requested psychiatric help, which was approved, and he was admitted to Atascadero State Hospital. There, he was diagnosed as a passive-dependent person with a facade of independence and confusion concerning sexual identification. I researched this because it sounds confusing as fuck to me (laughs) (laughs) and not at all official-like. Yeah, yeah. And this is what I found. Dependent personality disorder is a cluster C personality disorder characterized by excessive fear and anxiety. It begins in early childhood and it is present in a variety of contexts and is associated with inadequate functioning. Symptoms can include anything from extreme passivity, devastation, helplessness when in relationships or when they, when they end, avoidance of responsibilities, and severe submission. I don't buy this. <laughs> I also did some digging on the hospital itself because I didn't buy it. So I, this is what I found. Basically, an informal history of ASS. A, a Tascadero State Hospital, basically. Okay. Distributed in 1975, reports that a Tascadero opened with the philosophy that good therapy could be carried on in a security setting and that modern methods of psychiatric treatment based on a therapeutic community concept would most likely succeed. The problems of therapy versus security, prison versus hospital immediately developed and hindered successful treatment. So basically they were having trouble diagnosing and treating people successfully at the hospital the belief that criminals should be punished for their crime and not babied haunted the hospital program for several years beginning in 1959 a series of unfortunate and tragic accidents occurred at the hospital a number of escapes and violent incidents in addition to widespread community concern led to a special investigation of the hospital's problems, which ultimately resulted in a revamping of its organization, administration, and treatment programs. Beginning in 1961. The 1960s were also a troubled decade for Tescadero, plagued by internal dissension, staff rebellions, and occasional scandal. Ooh, scandal. Yeah, make of that what you will. (laughs) Anyway. He was then transferred to Stockton State Hospital, where a Dr. I. I. Weiss. Yeah, weird. Ah, uh, yeah, yippee. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Gave him a similar diagnosis uh, of that of the doctors at Napa. Dr. Weiss of that Stockton Hospital wrote, He seems to be afraid of the female figure and cannot have intercourse with her. He must kill her before he can do it. So wait, had he killed anyone at this other than the Jungfle? No. But in his fantasies though. Yeah. He he knows already that he has to kill a woman before he can That's what the doctors are telling him, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, but when we get to the murders we'll learn more. We'll learn more, yeah. Okay. But this is basically what the doctors are diagnosing him with. These are the comments that they're making simply based on what they're t- what Cole has told him. All these doctors yeah he hasn't actually well he killed the kids but like as an adult and teenager he hasn't killed anyone yeah 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 hasn't had sex with a corpse either but they're telling him 
it but, seems that you're afraid of the female figure and it kind of sounds like you wouldn't be willing or could be able to have sex with a woman unless she's dead first. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Dr. Weiss diagnosed Eddie as undifferentiated schizophrenic. Undifferentiated type schizophrenia is characterized by episodes of two or more of the following symptoms. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech or behavior or negative symptoms, but the individual does not qualify for diagnosis or paranoid, disorganized, or catatonic type of schizophrenia. Weird. Yeah, it's a lot of words, all right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, there's a difference because, like, I had never heard of undifferentiated type of schizophrenia. So basically, it's you have all these symptoms of schizophrenia, but you don't have the paranoid or the disorganized, and you're not catatonic. Okay. You don't go into catatonic states. This same man, Dr. Weiss, approved his release in April of 1963. So, yeah, it kind of seems like he can only have sex if he kills a person first, but fuck you, go on. It's so shitty. <laughs> like, when I was writing this, I was like, I was literally singing the praises of psychiat uh, psychiatrists, like the episode before with, like, the Zimbabwe kids with the two psychiatrists. Oh, the Zim- yeah, yeah, yeah. And now look at these assholes. <laughs> Laverne, Eddie's father, bought him a bus ticket to go to Dallas, Texas, to stay with his older brother, Richard, after the doctor suggested that a change in scenery might help. Richard spent the next few weeks showing him around the city. Two months later, Eddie tried to kill himself by swallowing pills after he failed to strangle a woman and spent four days on a suicide watch. Like he's literally crying out for help. Yeah, he could not be doing any more to try and get help. He then went to meet and marry an alcoholic stripper named Neville Billy Whitworth that same year. Now, so Carol is marrying Neville. Carol is the husband. Yeah. And Neville is the wife. Yeah. Okay. That's crazy. This sounds like a really healthy relationship as well, straight off the bat. Yeah, they're both like alcoholics and stuff. Yeah. Cool. Sure, look as long as they're happy. <laughs> but they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, so at this time, just for context, he was 27. Eddie moved out of his brother's and went to live at a motel with his new wife. This was a marriage doomed to fail, as he continued to harbor hatred towards women. The couple would get into screaming matches and physically fight each other, and sometimes use weapons during these fights on each other. The couple split after two years, but the straw that broke the camel's back that led to the breakup was Eddie's suspicion of Whitworth's infidelity. He was convinced that she was stepping out on him at the motel where they were both living. So, naturally, he burned down the motel. Good idea. Get straight <laughs> to the root of the problem. <laughs> the motel. I mean, I have to say, yeah, he really is like just a problem solver. That's fucking insane. He's like, oh, I know. I'll burn down this whole fucking place. Good on you, Eddie. Go on. So crazy. He did two years for this one, and he was released in January of 1967. 
Eddie then drifted off to Oklahoma City, only to get fined $20 for vagrancy by pimping, which means he was a homeless pimp, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> That's just a random fact just that I found. Re- <laughs> a really sharp-dressed homeless it's man. So They're like, weird. hey, you, give me $20. No, he's just like a homeless <laughs> man with a really big hat. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you get that feather for that hat, boy? The <laughs> next month, Eddie found himself in Lake Ozark, Missouri, where he broke into the bedroom of 11-year-old Virginia Roden and tried to strangle her in her sleep. She woke up screaming and he ran away. He was identified by witnesses to the police. He served five years for this. While he was in jail, he received psychiatric treatment through inmate programs, but he didn't take away anything from these treatments. Eddie was paroled in 1970 and drifted on over to Reno, Nevada. And while he was there, he continued to attempt and strangle women, but always failed. That's interesting. So he couldn't go through with it, I guess. Yeah. He eventually just surrendered surrendered himself to Reno police. Uh, while he was being held, he confessed to wa- again wanting to, to wanting to murder women, and they just gave him a slap on the wrist with a charge of disorderly conduct because he was he got arrested for attempting to strangle one of these women. Like he got caught, but again they just released him. Fucking hell! How many like? <laughs> but the thing is like. Okay, so for the the charge, the five-year charge, like, because he, he got released uh, for parole, remember, for yeah. trying to strangle that 11-year-old. Now, if you're on parole, you have to stay where you are. He wasn't, he caught that case in Missouri. If you get arrested, if you're caught anywhere else, and you, you first of all, you go straight to jail. Second of all, if you get arrested, you go straight to jail. But this guy was released. Just like, get out of here. And he's like, no, please, I'm going to kill someone. Exactly. Like, get, yeah, yeah. Get out Your of name's here. Carol. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But it, like, it literally sounds like he's just standing in line at a grocery store, like with his hands, like slowly closing around the lady in front of his. Do you know what I mean? In the line, he's like, oh, I tried. And then they catch him like. Yeah. Uh, So they charged him up with disorderly conduct. But because, you know, of his confession, they ended up committing him to to a state hospital uh, in Sparks, Nevada. Dr. Felix Peebles, (laughs) I know, (laughs) diagnosed him with antisocial personality with alcoholism and compulsion to strangle and rape women he found attractive but huge but here dr peebles recanted his diagnosis and said eddie was highly manipulative and used his difficulties with the law and his threats to commit violence to acquire shelter when he ran out of money the doctor believed that eddie was just some slacker and he was released on the condition that he leave nevada fucking hell isn't that crazy so he he thinks now that he's uh, he's not serious about this he's yeah. just using this as an excuse for yeah free room boy which like, could be like i think that's partly true entirely yeah. true i really don't think so so he agreed 
and they put him on a bus to San Diego, California. It was at this point, Adam, he decided to give up looking for help. Okay. Because nobody was helping him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't blame him. I would have been given up a long time ago. Anyways, he liked San Diego as it was easier for him to qualify for welfare and disability. There he trained as a nurse's aide and said working at the local hospital was also a source of aggression for him because of the nurse's treatment of patients. He said, have you ever seen a patient eaten up with bed sores because someone didn't care enough to do their job? And the verbal abuse was something else. I often thought of waylaying one of those nurses in the parking lot, killing her for the old folks, but unfortunately our classes were in the daytime. He also noted his urges increasing. He said, My urges were stronger than ever, but I wasn't concerned about it anymore. I just said to hell with it and waited to see what would happen. But he still seems to be like quite a practical thinker. like. Yeah, like he's almost self-aware. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, fuck it. But I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to kill them nurses because my classes are during the day. Like, yeah, don't be ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it'll like eat into my sleep for school the next day yeah you know like it's not it's not going to work into my schedule yeah anyways so eddie began picking up women in bars for sex he left some unharmed but the ones he judged as loose or fast women were the ones that he killed he would also come across women who had told him that they were married and that really sealed their fate for him like as soon as he thought that they were doing the dirty on their husband. Exactly. He would be like, oh, well. Oh, you're like my mom. Yeah. Yeah. His first victim, as an adult rather, in San Diego was S.E.L. Buck in 1979. After he strangled her, he stuffed her in the trunk of his car and kept it there until his 33rd birthday two days later. He later recalled, I felt nothing. Not elation, guilt, or any of the feelings thought to appease someone like me. Just cold nothing. After that, he went to San Isidro and picked up two unknown women on different nights. He only remembered the first victim as Wilma, but could not remember the other's name. He buried both bodies, and neither of them were ever found. In June of that year, he got picked up for theft and drunk driving and served eight months in jail for that. Yeah, and he's like he's pretty good at picking up these women as well like it doesn't seem like he's struggling at all no you know like i i looked at a black and white picture of him yeah like while he was in yeah. court and i kid you not he looks like he could be related to johnny cash but like with a smaller nose <laughs> <laughs> right oh yeah i see that picture there with the hair on him. yeah he has the same shape head as Ma johnny cash maybe he kind of Looks like he might be uh, like Johnny Cash's cheap cousin. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I see a resemblance. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. He didn't have any issue picking up women. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe it's kind of like the, you know, the way they say. Drunk goggles. Well, yeah, that. But like, you know, like back in the day, just loud seemed to be attractive. You know what I mean? Maybe he just. Mm, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps you are onto something, Adam. <laughs> he was questioned by a homicide detective, Robert Ring, for Essie's murder while he was serving time. Eddie admitted to being with Essie on the night that she died. 
He said when he woke up, she was already dead next to him. That he dumped the body because he panicked. As he was telling this story, he didn't think it would fly because it seemed far-fetched, even to him. But (laughs) Detective Ring bought it, and he was released in March of 1972. So just another, oh. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, like, I don't want to deal with this. His name is Carol. I mean, we better take him seriously. (laughs) After he was released, he went hunting close to the border because it was a wild place where anything goes. He picked up two Hispanic women in a bar. They all went for a ride outside of town to drink more beer. While one of them left the group to go pee, he crushed the other woman's skull in with a hammer and strangled the other one when she came back. He buried both in the desert and they too were never found. And was he like, was he having sex with them or, or not? Some of them. Others so, not. It, I, I feel like it really depended on how soon he decided this is a loose woman because he didn't have sex with all of them right okay okay yeah like if he figured because he would go he would pick them up for sex right yeah but he wouldn't strangle all of them right and he He also wouldn't have sex with all of them yeah he would like it it could be that he would go out have sex with a woman didn't think that she was loose didn't mention have a husband and next day it was like business as usual Oh, okay. But if he were, he would find out before or after that she was married, or he just like, oh, she's probably like some cheap woman that has a boyfriend or whatever. Yeah, yeah. What um didn't matter if you found out before or after is when he'd kill her. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. In the summer of 1972, he met and married a barmaid named Diana Fay Young Love Pachal, who was alcoholic herself. Good. Good. In 1974, they both moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, where Eddie found a job transporting coins from a local airport to the nearby casinos. He couldn't help himself, so he stole a shipment of coins, and he left and disappeared to Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) Joke's on him. It was all pennies. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie and Diana weren't monogamous to each other, and I doubt they had any understanding between them. Yeah. They were always arguing with each other, and he would go and disappear for a few days at a time. So to Diana, this was no different. Also, she knew he was in and out of jail. Yeah, I mean, and who the fuck hires a guy to specifically handle their money without doing like a background, just the slightest little background check? I don't think it was as common as it is now. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. In Wyoming, Eddie met Marlene T.P. Hammer. Her nickname was TP. And her second name was Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was Native American. Okay. That was her nickname. Very (laughs) fucking fucked up nickname. I was just racist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's why I was fucked up. (laughs) That's like me being called Spud. (laughs) (laughs) Or Patty. Yeah, or Patty, I suppose. Yeah, Yeah, because I remember you told me one time that was a, a racist thing. Yeah, a little bit. Calling someone Patty. Yeah. He claimed that she suggested that they have sex and he strangled her and left her body on a hillside under a sleeping bag. After her body was discovered, he fled Wyoming and went back to Las Vegas. There, he checked himself into a detox center. And while he was there, he stole a patient's $1,500 check. Motherfucker. He's just... He cashed it and left the facility. 
So he literally has no self-control anything over goes anything well remember like he made the conscious of dis- conscious decision of just being like fuck it i'm oh, done yeah yeah Let's that's go. true yeah hmm. he was arrested and charged for mail theft he went out on bail and didn't make his court date so he got picked up for unlawful flight he was sentenced to a year in prison in 1977 the police recovered the body of kathleen bloom a prostitute that he strangled and dumped on a stranger's backyard, but not before having sex with her corpse. That's what I was interested in. I bet you were. Eddie was arrested for auto theft. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't mean... (laughs) (laughs) Not like that. We just roll with the punches, you guys. (laughs) Great, great. Sound clip. (laughs) Eddie was arrested for auto theft after Bloom's body was found. Again, he made bail, skipped it, and went to Oklahoma City. While he was there, he visited a topless bar and met a woman there. They agreed that he would spend the night with her, and he claimed to have gotten blackout drunk. He woke up the next day to find the woman dead in the bathtub. He found her feet and one of her arms in the refrigerator. What? Her buttock and a skillet on the stove. He gathered the woman's remains and dumped it all in the city dump. After this murder, he was picked up again and charged, but it's unclear as to what the charges were for this time. But it was probably something minor, judging from the sentencing. He was convicted and set to serve six months in jail and three years probation. That is insane. Did he eat part of the body or that's like unclear? <laughs> he doesn't remember any of it because he there was some stuff. There was some of the butt on the stove still. Yeah, yeah. And some on a plate on a table. Jesus. Yeah. After all this, he went back to Diana. By this time, it was 1978 and he was 40 years old. A few months later, he was arrested again, but this time it was for being drunk. He was also charged with violating probation because, if you didn't know, you can't drink or use drugs when you're on probation. I didn't know that. He was released on a $2,000 bond on October 25th, 1978. Literally a month later, he was arrested again. And these charges never made it to his probation officer. Because if they did, he'd be locked away for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So it's just... Lazy police officer after lazy police officer. And lazy psychiatrist after lazy psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah. He had no clue that he was arrested again. The probation officer, I mean. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but like literally, it's like nowadays, it's impossible for that shit to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm guessing because everything is digital. Mm-hmm. A year later, he met Bonnie Sue O'Neill. They hooked up and the next morning... She mentioned that she had to call her husband. Oh. This obviously triggered Eddie and he strangled her and dumped her body in a garbage can. Jesus fucking Christ. In September of 1979, Eddie went home to Diana and strangled her to death. A suspicious neighbor called the police eight days later after they spotted Eddie drunk as fuck digging a grave in his crawl space. (laughs) I don't know how they caught him if he's in a crawl space, but they hey, did. Hey, Eddie, what you doing in there, Ed? Huh? <laughs> oh, just digging this here. I'm just this in this crawl space. Digging this here hole in the ground. 
The police arrived and found Cole digging a hole in his crawl space still uh, and drove him to a detox center because of how fucked up he was. He was released the next morning and because he thought for sure I'm going to get busted for this murder. Yeah. He hopped on a bus and went to Las Vegas. Fucking hell. The police found her body wrapped in a blanket and stuffed in a closet of the home. Literally, Cole had nothing to worry about because the police blamed the death on her excessive drinking. Cole was never a suspect. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, But he's strangling them. Yeah. I was like, oh, she must have tripped and strangled herself on the table because she yeah. was drunk. Yeah. Like, later... Um, because, like, when he eventually confesses to all these murders, two of the murders he confessed to doing in San Diego, like, the detectives that worked on them were like, there's no way because these women had no bruises on their necks. But it's like, the coroner reports on some of these are also questionable. Yeah, I can only imagine. It's like, ah, oh, just sign that there and yeah, say cause, nothing. Because, like. I mean, to, I, I feel like that's it. Yeah. In addition to, like, the sloppy police work. Yeah. You know? Well, again, like, if a policeman finds a body and doesn't want, like, and sees all these bruises and shit, but he's just like, ah, well, it was only a prostitute. Here, Mr. Coroner, sign that, and then I don't have to file any more paperwork. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to believe that a coroner would be like, no, this is, we have no idea why she died. Because I think when you're strangled there's like capillaries in your eyes that burst yeah yeah even if you don't have visual bruising that a detective would be like i don't know if she got strangled or not you know yeah no it's just straight up laziness and yeah Neg- like gross, negligence yeah gross, <laughs> that's the word i was looking gross for gross negligence yeah. yeah anyways eddie found work as a truck driver for a li- for a religious charity and was only able to lay low for a couple of months in 1979, he went to a bar and met Marie Cushman. They decided to book a room at the Casbah Hotel, and there he strangled her. He left the hotel in the wee hours of the morning. The body stayed behind in the room. That was a big shock to the unlucky maid who found it. Yeah, I'd say so. Police interviewed witnesses, but they gave conflicting descriptions of who was with Cushman that night, and none of the descriptions matched Eddie. One witness said the man that was with her, Cushman, was an Indian in his 30s with black hair. Another said he was 5'2 with gray hair. Just for context, Eddie was 5'6 with dirty blonde hair. A white dude. Yeah. Yeah. A month after that murder, he got sweet with a co-worker at his charity job and married her. I couldn't find her name, probably for privacy reasons, but... Anyway, while they were headed out for their honeymoon, they were pulled over by police. Eddie didn't have a valid driver's license, and the cop ran a check on his name and found that he had a warrant out for his arrest for parole violations. He was apprehended and eventually sent to the medical center for federal prisoners, where he stayed for almost a year. He was released and booked it back to Dallas. While he was in Dallas, he quickly killed three more women. On November 11th, he killed Dorothy King, and on, on the next night, the police and the metal, medical examiner who handled King's case ruled her death as an alcohol overdose or poisoning. Some hours later, 
His next victim was Wanda Faye Roberts. Detective Gerald Robinson was assigned to Roberts' case after they found Roberts' body on Bryan Street, naked from the waist down, blouse ripped open, and with bruises on her neck. Her slacks were laying 20 feet away, hidden in a wooden area. There were abrasion marks on her from where she was dragged across from the site where she was actually murdered. So she was like murdered in one place and dragged to the other. Okay. She was not sexually assaulted and they found very high levels of alcohol in her, in her blood. The detective went around to the local bars to see if she had been in one of them on the night that she was murdered. He found that she was a regular at one of the bars on Bryan Street, and the bartender recalled having seen her leave with another regular he only knew as Eddie. That was all he had to go on. So he had no suspects. Yeah. While Detective Robinson was busy looking for a suspect, Eddie strolled over back to King's house, the woman he murdered right before Roberts, to have sex with her corpse. Jesus. Two weeks later, Eddie was on the prowl again and met Sally Thompson, who had invited him back to her apartment in November. What Eddie didn't know is that Sally had two sons who were on the way to her apartment to visit. Oh... They knocked on Sally's door and got no answer. They could see lights on and they heard the TV blaring inside. They tried the door this time. It was locked. They kept trying to open the door until a man answered, stinking of booze and disoriented. The boys pushed past him and saw their mother on the floor, face down, with her pants and panties down her ankles. The boys panicked and ran to their neighbors to call the police. Eddie was taken in for questioning, and he claimed that she passed out right before they were about to have sex. How convenient. Like the way things have been going. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, not, I'm <laughs> yeah. already expecting you to say it, and that was fine. And they released him. <laughs> yeah. The autopsy came back, and the medical examiner's report said the cause of death was undeterminate, and Eddie was let go. Robinson got a hold of the Thompson case the next day and noted that Cole's middle name was Edward and could be shortened to Eddie, like the guy he was looking for. Yeah. He did a background check on Eddie and found that he had priors that matched someone who who would have murdered Roberts. You mean to tell me that this guy... Actually did some work? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And just so happened to find... Perhaps that this Eddie character has been saying for the last 20 something fucking years, <laughs> I think I want to murder yeah. and have sex with dead bodies. Basically. Bingo. Yeah. Got him. We got our man. Hole in one. <laughs> Robinson had some plain clothes officers go and pick him up from the Toys R Us warehouse where he was just employed. While he was in custody, he reiterated the story he gave to the other police about what happened the night sally died eddie then mentioned that he had a casual relationship with wanda roberts he said he got into an argument with roberts on the night that she was murdered but had no idea how or who would have killed her this interview was interrupted because there was a shooting involving an officer and robinson was called to go to the scene and check it out eddie looked like he was annoyed that the conversation was about to be over 
So he went into confession mode and spilled the details about the murder he committed. What the fuck? He just wanted the interest. It seems that way, but remember, he had all, like, I feel, I, I actually don't feel that way. I, I really think he escalated when he went to Dallas because he barely waited weeks yeah. to kill his next one. Like, Roberts and King murdered within hours of each other. You know what I'm saying? And when he's finally caught, he's like, I'm done. Like, how much more far-fetched do my confessions have to be for you assholes to just look at me? <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. Give me the attention that I need. Like, help me. Like, yeah. I'm going to kill again. Fuck. The details of the murder he was confessing to matched neither of the murders Robinson was looking into. Robinson left Eddie in the room and went to do some digging. The murder Eddie was potentially confessing, confessing to had to have been committed on the 9th by Robinson's logic, and he looked to see if there was any murders that day. He found the death of 52-year-old Dorothy King. The details all lined up with that murder, not to the one he was looking into. So he was like, all right, you know, let me start fresh because it seems like he might be our guy for that murder. Yeah. So, you know, good police detective work, you know, like they're not supposed to lead, yeah, ask yeah. leading questions. So he's like, all right, let me start this fresh. Let me go back in there and see what I can get. So he says, now about the girl in the bar, tell me about her. Cole replied, which one? So that's when he knew. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Which one? Eddie purged out a confession that lasted all night and into the next morning. During his confession, he said he could remember killing 14 other women, but added that there were probably more because he was always drunk when he killed women. He insisted he only killed drunken sluts that he met at bars. Wow. Yeah. Sex came before the strangling and sometimes after. He confessed to three murders in San Diego, the one in Wyoming, and two in Nevada. These were the only ones he could rattle off by name, so when he couldn't remember the names of the others, he was booked on three accounts of first-degree murder. Robinson wasn't sure if all the murders would stick because of the medical examiner's reports in two of the three murders, so he phoned San Diego police and they told him that Eddie didn't kill anyone in their city. The women he claimed to have killed in San Diego had examiner reports that ruled out homicide. I don't even know what to say. I, I have like, no words. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. That's all I can say about this whole fucking story. Dallas psychiatrist went to work to see if Eddie was fit to stand trial. Eddie's demeanor while he was describing what he did to the women he murdered was very passive, almost bored. This frightened the psychiatrist, but they agreed that he was sane enough to be tried for murder. Eddie's trial was on April 6, 1981, and he stood before Judge John Meade as his own defense attorney. While he told his life story to the court, he added more victims to his original roster, including the one he partially ate in Oklahoma. So that was like he did. He is down as a cannibal, basically. Okay. <laughs> yes and no he claimed not to have remembered killing this woman because he was blackout drunk when it happened 
Eddie only remembers the morning after. He stated, Evidently, I had done some cooking the night before. There was some that I hadn't eaten on a plate on the table. Nice accent. Thanks. Wow. Just wow. Yeah. But the prosecutor for his trial didn't buy the cannibal story and blamed it on Eddie's tendency to exaggerate. And her belief was that he was trying to get an insanity plea. Oh, okay, okay. So, I mean, it could be true. It could not be true. Like, don't really We're never going to know, yeah. I don't think so. The jury took all of 25 minutes before convicting Eddie, and he was sentenced to life in prison on April 9th, 1981. A year my sister was born. Oh, cool. Yeah. Soon after this, Nevada was trying to get him extradited to try him for the murders in their jurisdiction. Detective Joe McGuckin. Ca- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <What>? McGuckin. <laughs> Is that how you say it? I, I, you, you just said it. it's a funny name. Oh. Joe McGuckin. <laughs> I thought you were laughing because I was saying it wrong because it has that muck in the front. No, it's just a funny I name. I thought you knew. McGuckin. <laughs> when you say it, it sounds funny. <laughs> Detective Joe McGuckin <laughs> caught wind of Eddie's murders, murder confessions because Eddie mentioned murdering women in Las Vegas. He caught a plane to Texas to talk to Eddie, and McGuckin believed he had solved the Kathleen Bloom and Marie Cushman murders. It didn't matter, though, because Texas had him on a 25-year-old minimum. And it was unlikely that he would be tried in Nevada unless Eddie had agreed to such a thing. So he got sent to prison in Huntsville. And while he was in Huntsville, he plotted to escape by dyeing his uniform so it wouldn't look like an in, like an inmate's yeah. uniform. And putting Tabasco sauce on his shoes to throw off the dogs when they'd surely, un- the dogs that they'd surely unleash to find him. Yeah. Interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, another option was maybe he could overpower a guard, something like that. The point is he was plotting to escape. Yeah. On the night that he planned to escape, he suffered an injury while he was in the prison wood shop and got transferred to another facility. So that put a damper to his escape plans. (laughs) In January 1984, Eddie was informed that his mother had passed. Those around him noted a change in his behavior after that, and he agreed to go to Nevada, knowing that these murders would carry a death sentence for him. He was extradited and tried in Nevada the following month for two murders he committed in 1977 and 1979. Eddie pleaded guilty for two counts of first-degree murder. Eddie's defense attorney, Tom Patero, protested his attempt for legal suicide on the grounds that Eddie had no right to determine his own punishment and should be granted leave to determine other kinds of sentencing options. Eddie insisted that he believed in capital punishment and he should die as there was nothing good about him. During his trial, anti-death penalty campaigners, including the American Civil Liberties Union, tried to get his sentencing reversed, but Eddie protested against that. Jesus. In October of 1984, the judge Myron Leavitt gave him the death sentence, to which Eddie replied, Thanks, judge. 
Eddie was interviewed eight hours before his execution by Mark Fierro from KLAS-TV. Eddie told Fierro it had sometimes occurred to him to try to appeal his death sentence, but he was firm on going through with it. He firmly believes that he deserves to die for what he did. Fierro asked him if he felt remorse for his victims. He replied, yes, especially that little girl, Rodin. Her name, her last name was Rodin. Mm-hmm. But he didn't kill her, though. No, but he okay. tried to strangle her. Yeah, yeah. Eddie was strapped in with needles in his arms at 2 a.m. at Nevada State Prison on December 6, 1985. The injection began at 2.07 a.m. He convulsed on the table and then stopped moving. He was pronounced dead three minutes later. He narrowly missed getting executed by the gas chamber because at the time of sentencing, it was not in use because of gas leaks. <laughs> Jesus. If you guys heard my episode about methods of execution, you would know how much suffering is involved with a gas chamber death. Yeah. He was the first in Nevada to get the needle. Eddie went into the chamber of execution afraid of something going wrong during the injection and if it would prolong his suffering. I'm going to end my story with something that summed up his killing career. During an interview, he was quoted saying this, I was primed. I had made the mental commitment. I was going to get even with my mother and things just built up and built up and became an obsession. That's my story. Fucking hell. So just another story of a sad young fella. Sad little boy who just didn't get taken care of properly. Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like that's what Johnny Cash's song, A Boy Named Sue, I think that's what that story is if it was real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would actually happen? Like Exactly. Um, but his father was present, though, when he came back from the war, right? Yeah, but I mean... It just seemed like his mom was like, oh, a huge the bitch. damage was already done. Like, yeah, right on. Well, that was really uh, very interesting. Yeah. I, that was one of those like names that I had heard. Like, I don't know how many times, but I didn't actually know anything about the case. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, well done. Oh, thanks. That was a fucked up story. Yeah. All right. Um, my sources are murderpedia.org, Wikipedia and... Some more Murderpedia. (laughs) (laughs) I decided that I was going to go a slightly different route this week. After doing the whole... Well, this one's actually coming out two weeks after the Brownsville case, but um, I did the research for this one directly after it, and I wanted to give myself and the readers a little... or the listeners a little break. So my story this week is going to be about... The Black Shook. The what? Shook? Yeah. What's that? I'm about to tell you. Um, The Black Shook is known, like, today it's referenced all across the board in, like, different media and stuff like that. The song that I just played for Dulce, which I can't play on here because it's, you know. Because it's like stealing. Yeah, because it's like stealing. was by The Darkness and it's called Black Shook. That dog don't give a fuck. So... That's rock and roll, baby. I'm going to start this off with a um, description of the creature. Oh, it's a creature. 
It is a creature. Uh. W.A. Dutt, in his 1901 Highways and Byways in East Anglia, describes the creature thus. He takes the form of a huge black dog and prowls along dark lanes and lonesome field footpaths where, although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. You may know him at once should you see him by his fiery eye. He has but one, and that, like the Cyclops, is in the middle of his head. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is said that to meet him is to be warned that your death will occur before the end of the year. So you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear him howling. Shut them, even if you are uncertain whether it is the dog fiend or the voice of the wind you hear. Sound like a pirate. Yeah, I don't know (laughs) what I was going for with that. Just old timey. He's also more recently described as usually appearing as a black shaggy dog of enormous size with eyes like saucers that glow in the dark. But sometimes he is invisible his presence only detected from the blast of his hot breath and his padding footsteps. So two very contradicting descriptions. One saying that all you can hear is his footsteps. The other saying you can see and hear everything but his footsteps. But anyway, the story goes all the way back to 1127 to the first written account of the wild hunt in the English town of Peterborough. It was Sunday when they sing excurge Queer O D. Many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge, and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he goats. I can't do it. I'm just gonna have to fucking read it. Anyway, you sound like Yoda if you started talking slightly normally, <laughs> like com- like making a sentence normal. Yeah. It was Sunday. What am I doing? What am I reading? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was Sunday. <laughs> Sunday, the scariest days of all. The most haunted of days. <laughs> it was Sunday when they sing Excurge Queer O.T. Many men saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge and hideous, and rode on black horses and on black he-goats, and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. <laughs> Did I say he goats? He goats. <laughs> yes, the opposite of a she goat, clearly. <laughs> Obviously. This was seen in the very deer park of the town of Peterborough, and in all the woods that stretch from that same town to Stamford. And in the night, the monks heard them sounding and winding their horns. Okay, so the hunt was said to pass through the forest in the coldest, stormiest times of the year. Anyone found outdoors at the time would be swept up into the hunting party involuntarily and dropped miles from their original location. Who are these hunters? I hear you ask, they'll say. <laughs> Get to know your ghouls. The hunters differ. What the fuck? Get to know your ghouls. I might have copied and pasted this. I don't remember. <laughs> Either that or I was just really excited about this. And Anyway, uh, the hunters differ, I guess, depending on... like who you hear your story from sometimes they are just the dead some say that they're elves while others say they are fairies practitioners of magic may have sought to join the berserkers in spirit while their bodies remain safely at home so that's just one of these you know oh that witch on the corner you know she's a witch because she lives on her own and has fun 
<laughs> but she it said that they were like basically astral project to join the hunting party that's pretty cool yeah the, to me I'd, I'd like to do that yeah it said that the story of the hunt originated in scandinavia where odin was said to be the leader of, of this hunt while others say it was even his wife either berkta or holda i don't know that could be completely wrong and i'm sorry i don't know anything about uh, norse or greek mythology or anything like that but for those of you who are interested we are thinking of starting a patreon page where we would do norse and or greek mythology yeah so let us know what you think about that because i want to learn and i'd like everybody to learn with me yeah and if you want to set up like just meet and greets for us to get to know each other to solidify the community bond we can do that yeah anyway back to the story some also believe that the Vikings are to blame for actually bringing the hunt to England, like on one of their raids. You know, they brought this, these dark fucking spirits with them. But naturally, over time, this story has been retold and changed to suit different regions and beliefs. In Wales, the hunt is led by Gwynap Nud, the Lord of the Dead. However, in the Welsh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool. The Lord of the Dead. However, in the Welsh tale, the hounds accompanying Gwynap Nud are white with red ears. So they are not to be confused with the black shuk, mm. who is black with possibly red eyes. Mm. Needless to say, the story of the wild hunt was like a cautionary tale to the folks back in the day to say, if you hear the wind, get the fuck inside or you'll die. Um. Like, get sheltered. Basically, what that fucking amber alert was here today. Yeah. Well, it wasn't an alert, amber alert. Uh, the amber alerts for missing children my phone made a noise in my head that's an amber alert weather alert well whatever (laughs) so this was the first mention of our dog fiend friend anyway it's also (laughs) the only time that i ever saw it being described as cycloptic but his eyes are always described as red and as big as saucers Mm. because everybody used saucers back in the day right most reports describe them as large dogs with mangy black fur, foaming at the mouth, and the size of a calf or a horse. Two very different sizes to compare them to. Maybe they mean like a baby horse? No, that's a foal. I was just about to ask you, what's a baby horse? Yeah, a foal. Oh. Um, so a calf, which could like be fucking any size, I guess, like yeah. the size of a dog. Baby cow, yeah. Yeah, or a horse. Which is fucking gigantic. Like, yeah. Anyway, uh, they are known to appear suddenly as if out of nowhere and disappear just as quickly. Like burst into thin air and gone. One of the most famous reports of the Black Shook comes from its appearance at the churches of Bungay and Blytheburg in Suffolk, England. Sick. Yeah. Reverend Abraham Fleming wrote of August 4th, 1577. This black dog... Or the devil in such a likeness, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste, among the people in an invisible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees, which is where people kneel, and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both at one instant clean backward, in so much that even at a moment where they kneeled they strangely died. Okay, so that's like old English where people didn't really know how to spell or anything. Uh. But basically, Black Shook burst through the doors of 
the Holy Trinity Church, with a clap of thunder, ran up the middle of the church past a large congregation, killing a man and a boy and causing the church steeple to collapse to the roof. As he left, there were scorch marks on the north door which can still be seen to this day. Today, the local co- the locals call these marks the devil's fingerprints. So these were two churches that had this same occurrence on the same day at roughly the same time. It said that when he had finished in the first church, he went off at an unnatural speed and killed two more at the other church. Mm. That's basically all the information I have, but I have a ton of black shook witness stories. Are you going to tell them to me? No. Oh. I don't think so. I think I'll just leave. No. <laughs> so fast forward to 1905. A man claimed he saw a black dog turn into a donkey and then disappear. I'm not sure what this has to do with the black shook, but it's listed. All right. So there you go. During World War II, a four-year-old girl told of a large black dog with big red eyes walk from her window around her bed and then vanish in front of her eyes. Mm. The article said that she didn't sleep well that night. Oh. I don't know. A natural human reaction. Yeah, I don't know if anyone did any follow-up interviews with the (laughs) four-year-old. Probably not. They probably wrote her off as crazy or something. Annie now four and three quarters, is a heavy smoker who says she hasn't won a game of blackjack since that unfaithful night. (laughs) I don't even remember writing these fucking notes. Um, According to the poet... (laughs) A game of blackjack? So according to the poet Martin Newell, who wrote a poem about the black shuck in 1999, although the documented reports seem to be few and far between, the people of the area are still wary to this day with one Norfolk shopkeeper saying, Ah, you're writing about that now, are you? <laughs> well, be careful. Man and another, yeah, <laughs> And another local woman saying that she was cycling her bike home after delivering a baby early one morning in the 50s. She was a midwife. She was not just cycling her baby. <laughs> like her cycling her bicycle baby delivery service. Um, when a black dog appeared as if out of nowhere running alongside her and no matter how fast she pedaled she could not outcycle him so one thing that i definitely noticed i'm gonna i have like a lot more this one particular website this guy has seemed to have devoted a lot of his life to just getting accounts of the black shook yeah but there doesn't seem to be any like strict rules on what the black shook is like that big dog with the red eyes or whatever is traditionally the black shook but a lot of people have just seen large dogs or like that one dude with the dog that turned into a donkey yeah or, you know what i mean it was mm. basically a grim that's how i would know it big black dog yeah you know but like it's noted as bigger than like a dire wolf or something you know like fucking huge mm. in the early early 20th century mr e ramsey of barberg then a young man told how he was cycling home late on a moonlit night from a darts match in Norwich. As he got near his home village, he saw, sitting by the signpost, the biggest hound that he'd ever seen, with eyes that shone like coals of fire. Although nervous, he passed the dog, but it didn't move. Putting on speed, he went on by, but half a mile further on, he heard him approaching from behind, his paws beating the grit road. Although Mr. Ramsey thought the dog was coming for him, it went by him, 
so close I could smell his rankness. When it was well in front, the dog stopped suddenly beside a spinny, don't know what that is, and stood in the middle of the road facing him, looking aggressive. Mr. Ramsey stopped and dismounted in fear, looking around for someone to help him, keeping the bicycle between him and the hedge. But just at that moment, an unlit vehicle roared around the spinny. No, a spinny must be a roundabout. Uh. But just at that moment, an unlit vehicle roared around the spinny, careering from side to side and seemed to crash straight into the dog. Mr. Ramsey fell into the hedge with the bicycle on top of him as the vehicle rushed by so close and the way up the lane out of sight. As the witness picked himself up, he was amazed to see the dog still standing there as he was sure it had been struck. His fear of the dog returned, but to his surprise it just turned and vanished into thin air. Mr. Ramsey knew of the legends that anyone seeing this ghostly hound is a sign of death, either to the witness or his next of kin, but instead considering that it had saved his life on that night, since if he had been where the dog was, he would be dead. Nevertheless, he did associate the dog's appearance with the death of his wife two years afterwards. I <laughs> That's, That's the not... most random fucking thing ever. Yeah. To me, that can only be a good fucking omen. Yeah. Also, also, I'm going to refer to your morning breath as rankness. <laughs> rankness? Damn. Is that bad? <laughs> no, I just I just want a reason to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I like it. But yeah, so there again, the black shook was a good thing there. I don't see how you can say two years fucking later. That's like me turning around in 30 years time when I die, or hopefully like a lot longer than that. Let's say 80 years time when I die <laughs> at, at 110. That's because I had that packet of crisps back in 19. That packet of crisps saved me. Yeah. No, it killed me. That's I mean, what I'm it saying. Killed yeah. Me. Yeah. Anyway. I like salt and vinegar chips. Okay. 2003. It was a sunny day in the early autumn of 2003. I was driving east, not me personally, person who told the story. <laughs> I was driving. I would never drive east. <laughs> yeah, I hate driving east. You're fucking mad. I was driving east from the former Alton Airfield to Aylsham. These are all English fucking names, by the way. To Aylsham on Hayden Road, about midday. The approach to Abel Heath is a bend and a short rise. This literally sounds what? like a fucking riddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are those points of measurement? <laughs> What's happening? Okay, I'm going to start this again, listeners. Sorry. It was a sunny day in the early autumn of 2003. I was driving east from the former Ulton Airfield to Aylsham on Hayden Road about midday. The approach to Abel Heath is a bend and a short rise. Coming round this bend at the southwest corner of the Heath, I saw a large black object lying almost right across the road so i slowed to a halt this object stood up revealing itself to be a large dog i could see its back above the line of the car's bonnet it seemed fairly smooth coated i could not see its head it walked or rather slunk off the road to the right and i drove slowly on looking to the right there was no sign of the dog although there was no cover in the immediate area behind which it could have been hiding the whole experience lasted about 20 or 30 seconds. And that's it. Like, it just fucking disappeared. Yeah, so, you know, dog and then no dog. Dog, then no dog. 
So there's other reports of like just actual ghost dogs. Yeah. Also in the area. So I don't know at what point maybe the black shuck and this ghost dog just kind of like intermingles. So some people are seeing it and like that's okay. Why are you telling me? Whereas other people are seeing it and then two years later their wives are dying. <laughs> <laughs> and she was only 97. Do you know what I mean? When she died. Really? No, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> um, 1970. This timeline's a bit all over the kip as well. Uh, Mrs. M. Whitehead of Beckles writes, My mother lived in Ersham Street, Bungay, which is where the the church was where the dog appeared in like 11 or something I don't know. Uh, with my elder sister and I was at her bedside when she died in the early hours of the morning on January 11th 1970 as she was not on the telephone and to inform the doctor what had happened I went to as in she wasn't on the telephone system back then not just because she wasn't on the phone because she was dead like yeah got it so to inform the doctor what had happened I went to telephone from the kiosk outside the post office. As I went across Ersham Street, which was well lit, I looked right and saw this dog in the middle of the road running so fast towards Ersham that its feet barely seemed to touch the ground. After passing me, it seemed to vanish quite suddenly. I'm relating this incident to my sister on returning. She suggested that what I had seen must surely have been the black dog of Bungay. Yep. Huh. This is set maybe during World War One, that general time anyway, like 1910 to 1920 or something. The witness, then a young woman, was sitting alone on the lawn one afternoon at her mother's house when a massive great black dog that was horrible to see suddenly appeared at her side. Crying, she tried to push it away, but then it was gone. Her mother and aunt were indoors and saw and heard nothing. Sometime later, the witness, who was heavily pregnant, had to go to a nursing home at Hemsby in urgent need of a doctor. A doctor then came straight from Caster, Caster Beach, where a man had been blown up by a mine. The doctor was later overheard saying that she had nearly died in her pregnancy. She was afterwards told that the dog was old shook, that he had come to warn her of her death, and that the man being killed by the mine had thus saved her own life. So... I don't know how they came to this conclusion. Yeah. About the man dying, saving her thing. Mm. But like I was saying, the, the whole Black Shook story is the most vague, yeah. I guess, cryptid. Phenomena. Or phenomenon. Yeah, whatever it is. It's so varied. Like, yeah. in general, it's a known thing that, oh, if you see him, you're going to die. Mm. But I haven't seen none of the experiences that I read led to people dying like you know or it's like if you see him you're probably gonna submit this story to that one guy whose life is all about the black shuck yeah you know with no (laughs) follow-up yeah or like maybe all the people who have seen him and died died suddenly so who are we to say that they saw him or not yeah you know i don't fucking know but are they not alive to tell the tale yeah so it's a fun little story anyway and uh like i was this is our second time recording this because it yeah. somehow stopped. But I was saying already, if you have ever had an experience like this, yeah. make sure to go on to hiddenea.com. That's Hidden East Anglia. And this guy fucking, he, he lives, breathes and shits this stuff. 
So my other sources for this week were mythology.net and wikipedia and all that's interesting.com. But as weird and as vague as the story of the Black Shook is, it has made enough of an impression that it's still scaring people in the local area and also making an impression in our like popular media. Yeah. Such as The Darkness, like I was playing earlier. Yeah. Um and that was what The Darkness Permission to Land which was released in like 2003 which is actually makes me feel very old. It's also in the new Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I'm very eager to play. Yeah. He is Odin's dog. <laughs> so he's like a mini boss or something. It's Odin. Odin's dog. Od- Odin. I'm sorry. And probably the most memorable example is, of course, Sirius Black, Animagus Godfather of Boy Wizard, Harry Potter. Yes. Which, again, even in that book, actually, like, if I can remember back to when I was like fucking, what, nine and reading it, even Harry knew like that it was a sign of death and bad things to come. Yeah. But then once again, turned out that wasn't true. Exactly. So I don't know. I feel like now if I see a big scary black dog, I'm not going to be inclined to think that it's necessarily bad. Yeah. And I, and I, I think you're right because in other cultures, the black dog is like a manifestation of the devil. Yeah. Right. Or demons. Yeah. So I don't know where this comes in. Like, is it a protector or is it a demon? I don't fucking know. Yeah. Like, all the stories that I read so far, it's nothing bad. It's even saving lives. Yeah. So I don't fucking know. I guess it's a, each to their own, depending on where you are or something Or what like you that. believe in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But anyway. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another week. Yay. Another episode of Weekly Creep, right? We did it. Yay. Yay. How long have we been doing this for? Six months. Has it been six months? Yeah, it's been... We started in August. Yeah. Uh, it'll. This episode will be our actual six-month one, although it'll be like episode 36 or something. Uh, with all our, like, with our few bonus episodes and that. And yeah. Sick. Reach out to us, guys. This week, we got a, a handful of, like, nice DMs. Yeah. And emails mm. specifically asking us about like recent episodes and our opinion on this and that which is great like we love interacting which is yeah um and yeah follow us everywhere weekly creep just look up weekly creep and we're everywhere yeah uh we're under uh, your bed <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what fucking else like i don't know adam what should we talk about I think that's it. I think we're oh, just it? beating a dead horse, beating a dead dog for to keep uh. the team. All right, guys. Tune in again next week. Don't forget to check out our Redbubble. If you want to leave us a lovely rate and review on iTunes, send us a picture of it and we'll send you out some nice free stickers. Yeah, a lot of the people that have done that have already sent us pictures of them with the stickers. So it's just happy to see people just with our stuff you yeah, know it's, nice it's almost like the wild, right? exactly because it's like a little piece of us and people are like holding a little piece of us it's really yeah. cool <laughs> um yeah i guess that's it all right bye bye Dude, maybe uh, they mean like a baby horse no, that's a foal i was just about to ask you what's a baby horse yeah a foal oh